what we can do for Father's Day. I was thinking maybe baskets of brisket or pork or something would be good up here. You never know. We'll get some suggestions, some ideas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's all stand together. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. Continuing our series here in the book of Romans. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. We looked here in the first part of this chapter already, and it was one that was devoted to an explanation of the gospel and Paul's purpose in writing to the church of Rome and in sending this letter. And now as we look at the second section in chapter 1, Paul is turning his attention to those who are away from God and are in need of this gospel and what is due to anyone without it. And we got a lot of deep stuff in here tonight as we're going through this, but bear with me. There's some good stuff for us in it. Uh, but let's pray about, we're going to be looking tonight on why the wrath of God, why the wrath of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done for us. And God, the privilege that it is to be in church together tonight. God, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, just be with us tonight. God, I pray that you would help us, uh, Lord, in the pews tonight as we're holding your word in our hand. God, to be receptive to it. Uh, Lord, not to be distracted by anything, Lord, that's going on this week or going on in our heart and mind at the moment, but God, that we can truly receive your word. And God, be with me as I preach. Help me to clearly, Lord, to communicate the truth so we can better understand uh, what you have for us here in the book of Romans. Lord, bless us tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So just as much as Paul wanted the church at Rome to understand the gospel and what it was all about, he also wanted them to understand why the message of the gospel was even necessary in the first place. So as as we know who God is, and as we look at what God has done for us, we know John 3.16, we know God loved us so much he gave his only son to die for us. And we know that we didn't deserve that, but God loved us as we created him, we went against him, and he still has made it possible for us to have heaven. And God is a God of love. But at the same time, He is a God of wrath, and his wrath is revealed in the world today and will be experienced in eternity by every person who leaves the world without a personal relationship with him. And someone may ask the question, why does God, of all of his attributes, why does God possess wrath as part of his nature? And as we think of God being a God of love, it may be hard for us in our minds to understand why we would associate wrath with God or why God would be a God of wrath. And the answer to that question is found in these verses and in in very clear words he is telling us why his wrath is kindled against the children of the world. And, And the first thing as we look at here is just God's wrath toward men and the fact of God's wrath. So what is the wrath of God? You know, we we look there and 
In verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. In the New Testament, there's two different words used for the wrath of God. One of them would be the word thumos. And that would be the word in which we would get our word thermos or thermonuclear. And it refers to a sudden explosion of anger. And that's the word that we would find in Luke chapter 4 verse 28 when the people of Nazareth wanted to harm Jesus. They, were, they had just been so overwhelmed with anger they exploded and wanted to kill him at that moment. And it's also the most common word for wrath used in the book of Revelation that we will uh, get to at some point here in the near future. But the word used here in this portion there in verse 18 is different. It's the word orgy. And it literally means to become red-faced. And it pictures someone who is holding anger in while it is building up or stirring inside of them. And it implies that there will come a time when that wrath will come. When, when that wrath will be exercised. And this has been displayed in, in many different portions of Scripture. This type of wrath is the wrath we would most likely associate in the book of Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 8. When God's wrath was built up and restrained until one day he brought the flood in. We can look at Genesis chapter 19 and see another instance of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the wrath of God was slowly built up against those people until it burst in, in judgment from God. As we understand what happened there. It's also something we could probably associate with Exodus chapter 14 when the children of Israel were, were, had parted the Red Sea through the power of God and as the Egyptians were down there, those waters poured on top of them. God's wrath had kindled and it, 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 it killed uh, all of those soldiers there under the water. But do you want to know something incredible about the wrath of God tonight? We deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. But... God directed all of his built-up anger against sin in the past, the present, and the future, and he poured that anger on his son, Jesus Christ. And for all of us who are saved, all of us who have, the, have Jesus dwelling within us, we have found grace and shelter from that wrath. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through what a truth that is. Something to rejoice in tonight. And, and we see what wrath, God's wrath is and the righteousness of his wrath. It is not just wrath. It is the wrath of God is what it says there in that verse. You know, my children, unfortunately, have seen my wrath. When you and I get angry, we display our wrath that is tainted by sin. And in our human nature, we are prone from time to time for, for that wrath to be displayed in one way or another. And if it's not displayed in, in, in God's way, it is, it is sin. And we respond after the flesh and usually out, our outbursts are selfish or make us look like a fool. But on the other hand, as we look at the wrath of God, we can understand and we can, we can hold true tonight that the wrath that will come from God is always balanced, it's always fair, and it is just. You know, Barnes on this thought, the commentator, he said, it is clear that when we think of the word wrath as applicable to God, it must be divested of everything that is like human passion, and especially the passion of revenge. So as we think of God having wrath, we picture that wrath in our human mind, don't we? And we picture it as being uh, more, more passionate or revengeful. It is one of the most obvious rules of interpretation that we are not to apply to God's passions and feelings which among us have the origin in evil. The wrath that God will display 
or has displayed has always been righteous. Never unrighteous. Never unjust. Never undeserved. When the wrath of God falls on a life, it was deserved and was executed in perfect divine justice. What a truth that is. There is no possible way for God to react against sin but in judgment. He's appalled by it. And he will react against it. And as we continue the thought, it says that wrath, that righteous wrath of God is revealed. That means the wrath of God is constantly in view. And we can look around us all the time, but often we are unaware of what it is or when it is being exercised. And if this, and as we understand the wrath of God is revealed, why do we see the wicked prospering? If the wicked are truly full of sin and doing those things which are against God, and if God is a God of wrath against the sins of this world, why do we see the wicked prospering? Why do we see the wicked enjoying life or having things or having blessings? Shouldn't their life be filled with pain and suffering? And it would seem so in our human mind as we ask yourself that question from our perspective. But when we look into the word of God, it becomes clear that God in his long suffering gives the wicked many chances to repent. He wants them to come to know him. And, and this thought that many of us struggle with is the same thought that Asaph uh, struggled with. If you want to look at Psalm 73, I'm going to read part of it here in just a moment. Asaph looked at the prosperity of the wicked and the struggles of the children of God, and it caused him anxiety and confusion. If these enemies of God are, are prospering and they're going against God, if the, if the children of God are, are going against God right now and they are still benefiting from blessings... How, how is that possible? And this perspective that he had and the struggle that he had in his mind was cleared up when he considered the end of their life without the Lord. You look there in Psalm 73, verse 17. He had this problem. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. So he struggled with this thought until he considered that one day they were going to experience the wrath of God in its fullness forever. And he began to understand that God doesn't always exercise that when we anticipate it or when we expect it to. So we see his wrath defined. Then, then, then who is that wrath pointed to? We, we know the answer here, but as we continue there in verse 18, it says, against all what? ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's who it's exercised against. It's against ungodliness. This is referring to man's relationship with the Lord because men in their sinful nature are the enemies of God. The Bible says, if you look there in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 10, it says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be, we shall be saved by his life. We were once enemies, but because of Jesus, we are reconciled with him. Without him, we're not. The ungodly, the, the, those that are in ungodliness, are the focus of his wrath and are, and are therefore what we would call the children of wrath, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. And when there is no genuine relationship with God, some form of false religion will come, that which is ungodly. So either a lost person, a person without Christ, will worship another god, or what we find what we find mostly in the world we live in today, they will worship themselves as God. 
in either of those activities, either of those focuses, angers the true God and will bring his wrath to their life eventually. So it's against ungodliness. And then it says it's against unrighteousness. And we would, in our, the way we speak, we would associate unrighteousness and ungodliness as a similar thing or, or possibly as a synonym of each other. We think the same thing. That word carries this, the word unrighteousness carries the idea of ungodliness, but then it focuses on the result of ungodliness in the life of an unbeliever. Because man's relationship to God is wrong, his relationship with others will also be wrong. Get that? So as, our, as a man's heart is ungodly, as they, as they are worshiping another God or as they are worshiping themselves, then the unrighteousness will come as that spirit, that attitude, that mindset, that focus will be exercised to other people. Unrighteousness. And we treat others the way we do because we treat God the way we do. Many people treat others or act in ways to others the way they do because they treat God a specific way. And as we're going to continue to spend time here in chapter 1, Paul is going to reveal sins that are against God and against sins, and sins that are against man, excuse me. And what all of those sins, all those things have in common is that they are a product of a life that doesn't have a right relationship with God. I want you to realize something with me tonight and acknowledge something with me. Every problem man has with other men has its roots in man's relationship with God. Every problem an unsafe person has with man is, has its roots in the fact of their relationship with God. Every problem you have with another person or every association or every a relationship you have with another person has its roots in your relationship with God. So examine your life right now. Examine your actions now. If we don't look to God as we should, if we treat our relationship with God badly, we will treat other people badly. If we have no respect, if we don't revere God, if we have no fear of God, if we don't love him as we should, then we won't be able to show that to other people. We will show the opposite, won't we? But when we truly love God and when we, he is first in our life and as we worship him, we will love other people too. As we truly worship God and are devoted to him, then those principles that come with a life that is truly devoted to him, what does the Bible say? If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. If we are truly a disciple of Christ, we will what? Love one another. So when we love God, we will love other people. And, and I want you to, this, this week, as you think on this thought, if you just take this one thought home with you tonight, look around at yourself, at those close to you, look at the world and see if that truth doesn't hold up. His wrath is against the ungodly and those in unrighteousness. And it is because, what we find there at the end of that verse, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Why is God angry? He's angry at the ungodliness and unrighteousness, and he's angry because people have rebelled against his truth and hold those things as true. The phrase holds the truth in righteousness means that people know the truth, but they suppress it and they cling to their sins instead of to God. And we're going to look here at some more verses that follow in just a moment. 
But if we look there at verse 19, we'll see that men have had God revealed in them. God created all men with, in a, with an acknowledgement deep inside that he exists. And there's something built in a man that causes him to know, no matter what they say, that there is a God. But men love sin more than God. Men love themselves more than God. And because of that, they try to hide the truth that they know about God while continuing to go their own way in sin. Psalm 14, verse 1. We know this verse very well. The fool hath said in his heart, what? There is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And if we were to look there at Psalm 14, verse 1, we will look at those two words, there is, and they are italicized. Meaning those, those words have been, uh, through the interpretation of the text, have been given to us to give us a clear explanation of that thought. So if we were to look at the, at the original text, it would say, the fool has said in his heart, no God, is what it would say. The rendering would be no God or nothing of God or God is not. So the idea is that there is no such thing as God or no such being as God. That's what the fool says. The fool said in his heart, no God. No such being as God. No such thing as God. And the fool is a person who has just said no to God. They want their way over God's way. Want to live in rebellion against God in suppressing the truth of God while holding to the sin or to what they want. So that's God's wrath defined. That's the focus. That's the reason for it. Those three things. So as we continue on here in verse 19, now let's not just look at God's wrath, but let's look at man's manifestation of God there. It says in verse 19, because that which may be made known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has a strong desire to reveal himself to man. God wants all men to come to him personally. God wants all men to know him and to have a relationship with him. And to do this, And God has manifested himself in millions of ways every day. And we look there in verse 19, it says, Because that they which may be known of God is manifest in them. The truth of God is in the heart and mind of all of God's creation. I think if I was to say the name Helen Keller tonight, many of us would know of her at least a little bit. She was stricken by a disease as a little girl that left her blind and deaf and mute. And this lady named Ann Sullivan came to her and became her tutor, and she worked tirelessly to help Helen learn to communicate, and they did it through touch and, and other things. And eventually, Helen learned to communicate, even though she couldn't hear, even though she couldn't see, even though she couldn't speak. She communicated through touch. She even learned to talk. And when Ann Sullivan tried to tell Helen Keller about God, you know what Helen Keller said back to her? She said, in her response, she already knew about him. She just didn't know his name. Without a Bible, man can come to know about God. It's manifest in them. What a truth about, what a truth about God that is and what, what it, something we can praise him for. You know, God's desire to reach man runs so deep that he has placed a revelation, a manifestation of himself in every one of his creation. 
And he's not only done that, but then he's placed his truth all around us. The Bible backs us up and look at Psalm 19, verse 1. You still with me? A lot, of, a lot of deep stuff here, but it's good. It's good. It's a help to us. Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Verse 5. Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. He's everywhere. But he's manifested himself, not just in our heart, not just in our mind, but in all of his creation. To the fact of the heavens declaring his glory. You know, God's revelation, his manifestation of himself is so strong and clear that every rational creature are bound to acknowledge and worship him. Just, just think of some things we know about the creation of God. The intricate details of every one of those things. The first thing, a seed becoming a, a mighty tree or birds that are able to navigate through the stars. Even in a windowless room in an artificial sky, they are able to turn themselves in the right direction. They've run tests on this. What about when we can take a telescope and see objects over 4 billion light years away? 25 million septillion miles. <laughs> There's a fact most scientists now believe that this universe came into existence at a specific instance in time. Even evolutionists are, are coming to grips with the fact that there was a specific instance in time that the world was made. It didn't develop, it just started at one point. It was nothing and then it was. At any, at any given instant, there's over 1,800 storms throughout the world. There's over 10 million species of insects. The earth that we live in, 25,000 miles in circumference. It spins 1,000 miles per hour with absolute precision, never off track. You know, the sun travels 186,000 miles per second. Did all of this just happen? No. You know, God did all of those things besides revealing himself in our heart and mind to prove to man that he is real. To the fact even evolutionists in the day we live in are starting to believe that there was some sort of intelligent design. They won't acknowledge who that was. But, but they're, they're having no other explanation but that it was created at an instant intelligently. He's revealed himself to us. And the purpose of it is to force man to a moment of decision. It says there in verse 20, so that we are without excuse. You know, God's desire is that every person bow before him in repentance and worship. That's what God wants from the world. God doesn't want to put his wrath on mankind. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
All men need to come to a decision. That's what God desires of men. But we know tonight that not all will. You know, God has proven without a doubt that he exists, but those that refuse to believe in him are faced with evidence tonight and left without excuse for their behavior. And all men are are guilty as charged when they face Jesus at the great white throne judgment. And no matter what people may say on earth, no matter what kind of arguments may be given, one day every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those that haven't accepted him, those that haven't taken the payment of Jesus Christ on their behalf will face the wrath of God. So we see God's wrath here, we see man's manifestation of God, and then we see, continued here in verse 21, man's rejection of God. Look at verse 21. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations And their foolish heart was darkened. So God has revealed himself to all mankind in different ways. And even though men inside, deep down, know that God exists, even though they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. A careless choice. Man has been faced with the truth of God and makes a stand against God. And in doing that has been moved to the realm of rejection. And we see that rejection here in two ways in this first. First thing, no praise. They refused to magnify and exalt God as God. They glorified him not as God is what it says there in the text. And the primary goal was not glorifying God, but glorifying self. Men fail to honor God when they refuse to give God The place in their life that he deserves. Rejection. Do you agree with me tonight that God deserves first place? But those who walk in unrighteousness, those who walk in rebellion against God, have not given him proper place in their life. And that will result one day in the wrath of God. And it's not just no praise, but there's also no thankfulness. They didn't thank God for the life given to him, didn't thank God for what he had blessed them with, the the creation that they dwell in. And they took all things that they had brought, that brought into their life or inherited or, or have for themselves as their own, their selfish gains without a single thought being given to the creator. And then that brings a result, a deserving result to them. He says, but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. So because they knew God and they rejected God, they were given over to that life. And that, that brings an empty life. You know, we, we, look, we look and we see vain imaginations. They were vain in their imaginations. You know what that means? A pointless existence. Those that have chosen self over God, those that have chosen not to take the gift of God for themselves, those that choose to live contrary to the ways of God and those ungodly and unrighteous lives are living a pointless existence, as sad as it is to say. Living for themselves, wasting their time by filling days with themselves. But eventually those days are going to come to an end and they will find that all the time they lived for themselves, all the time they lived for gains have been wasted and are vain. What does it mean if a man accomplishes great things in this world 
and in the end goes to hell. If an individual does those things and dies without Jesus, they lost the only things they genuinely possessed. The soul. That's it. You know, Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That life is accounted to nothing. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Those that die without Christ are living an empty, meaningless existence. And then it, and then it says that their foolish heart was darkened. So they lived in a, in a state of mind completely blinded to the truth that they knew deep down inside. And they lived and they died in darkness rather than the light. And that has brought a continual decline. Look there in verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Does that describe the day and age we live in? And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. Changed who their reverence should be towards to something something corruptible. And to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. It's the fullest perception there. Many men and women who have turned against God have closed their eyes to the truth of God, thinking themselves to be wise. Thinking themselves to know something better than the Christians know. But God says that while they think they are smart, while they think they are wise, They are nothing but fools. That's what it says. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth there in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the Foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. To the world around us, I look like a fool up here. (laughs) To the world around us on a Sunday night, you could be doing a lot of other things, but you're sitting here with an old book in your hands, and to many in the world, you look like a fool. Yeah, they, they, many, many people against God see the Christian as the biggest fool in existence. Missing out on all the pleasures of the world. But God has said professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And not only that, but there is a continuance and really an evolution in false religion. So man says no to God, then man turns around and invents or comes up with other things to worship. Talk about foolish. Creator God has revealed himself, manifested himself to all of mankind. And not only did man choose not to accept that or to acknowledge it or to revere that, but then comes up with what they think they should worship. And when we have the truth of God given to us, we have the truth of God revealed in our heart, made known, manifested to us, 
not only chosen not to follow, not to give in, not to worship what should be worshipped, but to make up things to be worshipped. If an individual doesn't worship God, they will manufacture a God to worship. We mentioned that a little bit ago. And if that doesn't work, they'll find something else to worship. Look here at what happens to man's worship left to himself. It says there in verse 23, he says they changed the glory of God, incorruptible God, into an image made like to corruptible man. He says birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Just a downward spiral, searching for something. Man goes from man to birds to other animals to reptiles. It's really the opposite of what some people believe about evolution. When man steps away from God, he doesn't evolve, he devolves. He doesn't progress upward, he goes downward. A life without God is on a downward path. That's what it says. And we'll end up with the wrath of God on that life. As we look at these verses tonight, I hope we've all come to a conclusion that a holy and righteous God has plenty of reason to be filled with wrath. That's a sad state to be in. You know, we're Christians here tonight and and we have, if we have Jesus in your heart, if you put your faith and trust in what he did and nothing else, nothing you've done, if you've been born again, you've escaped the wrath of God. But understanding that tonight, we need to examine our heart to see if there's any area or part of this rebellion we find that we've allowed ourselves to be in. And I don't know your heart tonight. I think it's safe to say that not everyone here tonight is directly in the center of the will of God. There may be some of us here tonight that are waiting on God to, to bring something about, something you may be praying for, hoping for. You may be tired of waiting. You may maybe already have given up waiting, trying to make something happen for yourself instead of waiting on Him. It's choosing self over God. Maybe something in your life just seems too hard. It's too difficult. So you take things into your own hands. I don't think anybody in here would deny the existence of God. But it's quite possible that God isn't in his proper place. If you are saved, you are eternally spared from the wrath of God. You're not spared from, from his chastisement. You're spared from his wrath. And if we can leave here with anything tonight, we can leave here understanding that eternity in hell is something all of us can praise God that we have been spared from. You know, there were some pioneers who were making their way across the central states hundreds of years ago to a, a place that had been opened up for homesteading. And they traveled in their covered wagons, they were pulled by oxen and other horses, and, and progress began to slow down, and one day as they looked off in the distance, they saw a long line of smoke in the west, and it stretched for miles. And soon it was evident that the dried grass was burning and coming towards them rapidly, and they crossed a river the day before, and it would be impossible to go back to where that was, and the flames 
would be on them. So one man in that group decided the only thing that could be done is to light more fire on the grass behind them. And when that space is burned over, they would take the whole company, the whole caravan of people, and they would step on that already burned grass. And they, they did just that. They stood there and they waited. And as the flames from the west continued to get closer and closer to them, this little girl cried out in fear. She said, are you sure that we're not going to be burned up? And the leader, the one who came up with that idea, he, he said to her, he said, my child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. We understand the wrath of God tonight. But what an incredible picture that is of the believer who is safe in Christ. Are we thankful for that tonight? We've escaped his wrath. So understanding that, we need to be thankful to our God. We need to praise him as he is. And we need to do everything we can to convince other people to put their faith and trust in the one who has been made manifest in their heart and mind. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, God.